before we pray, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 12 through 16. Um, uh, but I want to pray first. But I, I just want to say uh, it's it's almost like coming home. Uh, the Chevalas have become uh, dear friends over the last uh, couple of years, and their prayerful uh, and uh, material support of our ministry. And so uh, we did not know each other two and a half years ago, and we have come to know each other even uh, in that time. And uh, so much has happened in two and a half years. Um, and we'll get into that. But who could have imagined what would ha- happen eight months after uh, August of 2019? Uh, but it's good to be back, no masks, uh, or no required masks, uh, no mandated masks. And very few people are separated by six feet, which is a good thing. It's comfortable. So uh, it's good to be here with you. Uh, Debbie and I have been praying for you for uh, the last four weeks, and we continue to pray uh, for you. And she sends her love, uh, my bride of 42-plus years, and um, uh, we uh, look forward to seeing how God works in and through your midst in some powerful ways. Before we get into the passage, why don't we pause and pray and uh, give this particular time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for uh, the victory of which, what we've just sung. Uh, you have overcome. You have overcome death. You have overcome sin. You have overcome our sinfulness and our frailties and our inadequacies and our, our inability to do everything that you put before us. And you, in your grace and your mercy, you have won the victory. And we praise you and we thank you for that. We praise you and thank you for the opportunity to gather for worship, for the ministry of your word. And we give this portion to you now as we continue our worship. Father, accomplish your purposes through this time in your word. And the focus, obviously, is on your word. You have given us the living word, Jesus Christ, but also the written word. And uh, we know that you use uh, the proclamation and and application of your word to change lives. And so we do ask for transformation in our perspective, in our thinking, and uh, further enhancing our walk and our relationship with you. Father, we give you this time, ask that you would accomplish your purposes despite the speaker, the messenger, and his inadequacies. Uh, Father, let your truth and your love come through in this time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, and it's the traditional uh, passage for Palm Sunday, but uh, I, I hope we'll see after we go into it uh, some some different applications and perspectives as it applies to our daily life. Uh, and you know the situation. Uh, we're going to come back to the immediate context. But Jesus has, has performed some uh, miraculous deeds. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, word has gotten out. And so as they're entering into Jerusalem for uh, the final week uh, of Passover, word gets out and the crowds gather. And so in verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, 
sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been uh, done to him. I, uh, I'm coming to recognize that as I get older, well, number one, that I am getting older, uh, uh, the inevitable. And I suppose that it is better than some of the alternatives. Uh, but I've come to appreciate uh, my perspective that I like to put together a plan and work that plan. Uh, 40 years, I was just uh, totaling it up, 40 years ago, I was uh, pastoral staff, ministry staff in a church in Miami, and I decided to get my scuba diving certification. And so one of the things, went with a dear friend who was uh, my professor in Bible college, and we went through the class together, and one of the things that our instructor said over and over time is when you get out in the open water, in the pool, it, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't make any difference. When you get out in the open water, You've got to plan the dive and then dive the plan. So you first come up with the strategy. And then once you get underwater and you're uh, submerged and you're uh, tempted to become uh, enamored by all that you see and there's some miraculous and, and wonder glorious things to see down there, you've got to dive the plan. I don't think I realized it at the time, but I started applying that to life that I like to plan the work and then work the plan. And you don't leave a lot of things up for happenstance and chance. As much as you can, you, you take the initiative and you mark your path, and then you go down that path. And you try and avoid, or at least I do, Not every, I understand very few people uh, may embrace this perspective, but I've, I've said, okay, this is what we're going to do for career, for serving God, and this is the strategy, so we mark it out, and you don't let things get in the way to alter that plan. Also, in my old age, I've come to understand that God doesn't always appreciate my plan. (laughs) And he has felt free at numerous times to interject components that I never saw coming, that very directly, specifically caused me to alter and adjust my plan. And that's not very comfortable. Because life has a way of interjecting things that were unexpected, doesn't it? You're going along, everything's fine at the job, and then all of a sudden, bam, way out of left field, the boss says, we have taken a major hit, and I'm sorry, we've had to terminate your position. Never saw it coming. Or your things are going well, and you're driving to work one morning, and out of the side, somebody runs a red and die, crashes into the car, and you end up in, in the hospital uh, recovering with a broken leg, uh, taking you out of the the softball league or the bowling league or whatever, you never saw it coming. Or the doctor calls back with a diagnosis that isn't exactly what you had hoped for. You never saw it coming. And the unexpected has its way of of infecting our plans, doesn't it? 
things are going well, economy is going well, the nation seems to be on a good track, and all of a sudden the interjection of something called COVID-19. If you had a plan that you were working in February of 2020, by mid to late March of 2020, I suspect that plan was altered, wasn't it? But sometimes it seems like God himself does things that interrupt our plans. Either he does things or he allows things to happen. Uh, My first real introduction into the crises that first responders experienced was Sandy Hook, uh, coming up on uh, 10 years ago. And... I was with uh, our guys. I was with some of the folks in in Newtown for uh, a couple of weeks surrounding the events. And I suppose you could guess what the most common question was that I was asked following that by cops. It wasn't immediately, but in the weeks and months afterwards. And if you look at my my truck, the license plate says Rev. Instead of Reverend Revel, the cops call me Rev. So they come up to me and say, Rev? If there is truly a good God, how could he let this happen? I'm having doubts on whether there really is a God. But if there is a God, how could he let this happen? And sometimes we're faced with situations where we have to, well, we don't have to, but we feel compelled to say, God, really? Really? I mean, things were going well. Things were unmarked un- for the plan to be accomplished. We're really trying to do your will in this. So it's not like we have some wild, far-fetched idea. We think we're doing what you want us to do, and we're going along on the path. We're following the plan, and all of a sudden, bam, out of the blue, you've either done this or you've allowed this to happen. If you have sensed any of that in the last 36 months, I commend to you this morning the disciples. Because starting on Palm Sunday and in the days leading up to Good Friday, they were about to have their world rocked by the unexpected. And I suspect it began with this specific passage. So if you're keeping notes, there are two main points this morning. Yes, I am Baptist, but I only have three points this morning. I don't have two, okay? So the first point is sometimes God does things we don't expect, and sometimes he does not do what we expect him to do. And the disciples came to realize that. And they had seen bits and pieces of it over uh, the course of the two and a half years or so that they were with Jesus. But it really started to sink in on that Palm Sunday with what Jesus did and did not do on that day. Now, go back to the passage. What the people were saying was Hosea, and they were uh, quoting Zechariah, Zechariah 9. But Hosanna, which in the Hebrew there is this image of calling out to the king, the Messiah, and asking for deliverance. And in that 
that Palm Sunday, they are recognizing Jesus as the king. Now for us, 21st century America, we are a couple of hundred years plus beyond living under a monarchy. And so we put this notion of kingship aside for the most part. There are a few monarchies in the, in the world today. No major nation uh, lives under the rule of a king. But in the first century, kingship was huge. The people recognized the king as this combination of kingship, human uh, majesty, and deity, so that there was a connection with God all the way around. Even in the day of Jesus, Caesar was seen as a god. So there was a connection between religion and kingship. But the king had absolute authority. He made all of the laws and kept all the laws, and he had absolute ownership. So the king was everything. And the people of the day, the Jewish people, were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they were longing for the promised king to come and overthrow the Roman Empire and establish the kingly reign of God on earth in its place. They were all familiar with the passage, and and you know this mostly from Christmas time, but from Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you see this royalty being interjected into this promise of the coming Messiah. But the next passage, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his, uh, I'm sorry, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time Forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Imagine living under the darkness of an oppressive regime. The temptation is, is to look at what's going on in Ukraine right now and see the oppressive regime of Putin being superimposed in force upon a sovereign nation And the Jewish people had experienced that for generations now. Uh, uh, In their own homeland, the the Greek uh, kings, they came and took power, and then the Romans. And the Romans were forcing their beliefs and their traditions upon the Jewish people. The people wanted relief. And it looked like Jesus, the king. What everybody was, was seeing as the fulfillment of these passages it looked like Jesus was going to be that one who would deliver them. Now, saying in the context of John, if you go back and look at the the, uh, first chapter, you will see as John the Baptist introduced Jesus, uh, John the Baptist was recognized as the one who was preparing the way. And so some of his disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, John the Baptist told them, this is the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And so they're discussing between themselves, hey, this looks like the Messiah, the Christ, which was synonyms for the king. And they tell Nathaniel about it. Nathaniel says, you know, what good can come from there? And when he meets Jesus, Jesus says, I saw you sitting under the tree. And Nathaniel falls at his feet and says, you are the king of Israel. 
And so there is starting to boil up in, in the disciples this notion, okay, here's the king, the promised king. And they probably got some words about the miraculous conception and, and the prophecies coming through. True. And as time goes on, Jesus starts doing miraculous things. Uh, he changed the water to wine into to Cana. He takes his disciples through Samaria, and he comes and he meets with the Samaritan woman at the well. And for the first time, he openly declares, the Samaritan woman says, we know that the Messiah is coming, the Christ, again, synonymous with king. And Jesus said, I, the one with whom you are speaking, I am he. And so he openly declared his kingship to the Samaritan woman. He does more miracles. He feeds the 5,000 in chapter 6. Uh, in the middle of it, it says that the people were ready to take him and make him king by force. So in the course of the ministry with the disciples, they see this prospect, this promise, this hope that maybe the king truly has come. And maybe he really is going to deliver us from the oppressive regime of the Roman Empire. And the more he worked miracles, the more they started to see this as a potential reality. So that when word came that uh, Lazarus was uh, dying and Jesus told the group, let's go, Thomas said, let's go with him that we may die. He thought that the revolution was going to start. He wasn't so convinced that Jesus was able to mount this insurrection and this revolution, but he was willing to die for this cause. And so they go, and Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the word starts to get out, not just changing water to wine, not just healing somebody, not just feeding, multiplying loaves and fishes. This is someone who had been dead for three days. It was irrefutable, undeniable truth that this man was dead. And Jesus raised him from the dead three days after he was pronounced dead. And so the word started to grow. Okay, here's the king. Here's the one who's going to deliver us from all of our excruciating bondage in in and the oppression, and all of the darkness that has been forced upon us. The king has come. And so you can almost see in the disciples' minds this plan forming. Okay, we're going to Jerusalem. The time is right. Jesus has had ongoing debates and disagreements with the Pharisees, It's known that the Pharisees are trying to mount some kind of arrest to take him into custody, and he has avoided them. They tried to stone him a couple of times, and and he was able to evade. So the plan is starting to come together. And we're going into Jerusalem, and this is the perfect time, the Passover. And Jesus is going to launch the insurrection and the revolution. At last. We're going to be set free. At last, the prophecies are going to be fulfilled. At last, we're going to experience relief from that which has weighed us down. And so on that day, as Jesus 
is coming into Jerusalem. The stage is set. But Jesus started to do some unexpected things. Go ahead to the next couple of slides. In the week leading up to Jesus' arrest, he demonstrated several th- three things that we're going to see in the course of this entrance into Jerusalem. First, his focus was on peace, not revolution. This is totally contrary to what they were expecting. They were expecting Jesus, if he's going to make a grand entrance, a king would do that on a white stallion, coming in with all of the majesty and the show of force to generate enthusiasm and support and uh, to get all of the energy going so that such a revolution could unfold. But commentators point out that the cult... Not a stallion, but the foal of a donkey was a sign of peace. So the first thing Jesus did to do the unexpected that went contrary to what they were hoping for was he embraces an image of peace rather than revolution. The next thing, gentleness, not violence. The Zechariah 9 passage focuses on this notion of gentle. And I don't know about you, but if you're going to mount a rebellion, do you want a gentle general taking the lead? Much less the king. Could you imagine associating gentleness with Putin? It it doesn't fit the mold. The next thing is very, the word in Hebrew for gentleness can also be translated humility, not pride. Now, when you think of world leaders, it's easy to think of this image of one standing up there who has everything under control, and pride sometimes is seen as an asset rather than a liability. But Jesus totally dismiss that, and he enters into Jerusalem demonstrating humility, not pride. At this point, you can almost see the disciples shaking their heads and saying, this doesn't seem to be matching up with the plan. How is Jesus going to overthrow the Roman Empire if he's not going to embrace revolution and pride, and uh, strength, and power. And then on the Thursday night, and if you read forward a couple of chapters in, in 13, you can do it later. You're familiar with the passage. Jesus gets his disciples in the upper room, and he gathers them around for this, this final uh, Seder. And he does something that was totally unexpected, completely out of the blue. Someone should have arranged for a servant to come and prepare a basin of water to wash the guest's feet. That was standard protocol. Now, in the day and in the era, that role was reserved for the lowest slave on the socioeconomic strata because this was a filthy job. Remember, the people in that day did not have enclosed shoes like we have. They didn't have boots. They wore what? Sandals. Open-toed. 
They didn't have concrete sidewalks or asphalt roads to walk on. What were their roads made of? And who did they share those dirt roads with? Animals. And from what I understand, the animals of that day were not potty trained. <laughs> and so whenever you had guests come in, you had the lowest servant there to wash all of that stuff, if you will, off of the guest's feet. Because they didn't sit at a table with their feet hidden underneath. They reclined so that the feet could be close proximity to the people next to them, the person next to them. So it was necessary to have clean feet. But a Jewish slave was seen as too high to do that, so they would get a Gentile slave to do that. But somebody dropped the ball. Somebody missed the plan. And Jesus, rather than pointing fingers, he got up, he got the towel, he got the basin. And the king of Israel, indeed, the king of the universe, got down on his knees with a basin and assumed the role of the lowest slave in their minds. He embraced this model of servanthood, not mastery. And then, when he was finished, and you could see Peter, he said, wait a second, you know, you're not going to do this. Wait a second, Jesus, you're getting this wrong now. Uh, remember, you're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be getting ready for this huge upheaval. The king doesn't do this. But Jesus said, this is what I'm doing, and furthermore, this is what I expect you to do. I expect you to serve one another. This was not going according to plan. Jesus was doing the unexpected. And then when they get to the garden, and after Jesus prays, here come some soldiers to arrest Jesus, and they think, okay, this is it. And they take out their swords, and actually one slave gets his, his ear cut off, and Jesus said, wait, no, don't do that. Uh-uh. And Jesus surrendered rather than mounting the insurrection. And it totally devastated the disciples. They were as distraught and dejected and destroyed as it's possible to be. Because all of their plans, all of their hopes, all of their dreams that they had placed on Jesus completely blew up and failed to materialize. He did what they did not expect him to do. But he did not do what they would hope that he would do. He did not launch the revolution. He did not, and it's not just revolution for the sake of revolution. He did not take the steps necessary to deliver them from 
their poor, miserable situation. He, as he was arrested, and as he's taken into custody, and as he gives all the evidence that he's not about to launch a revolution, all of their hopes and dreams of freedom, deliverance, a new sovereign nation, no more economic downturn and depression, all of the bright hopes for the future were dashed as soon as he was arrested and taken into custody. And they learned the hard way that sometimes the king does not do what is expected. Now before we get to the second point and wrap it up, perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you have had hopes and dreams. Perhaps you made plans with your family, with your career, with your spouse, with your children, with your finances. And you've put confidence in the Lord that you felt was absolutely rock solid. And perhaps the Lord did something that you didn't expect him to do. Or perhaps he did not, he failed to do what you would think that he should do. If he truly is a loving God, why didn't he intervene? Why didn't he stop this? He could have healed. We prayed for healing. We prayed in faith. We prayed with a number of people. We prayed for healing And he didn't heal. We prayed for financial relief, and he didn't provide. Perhaps you can relate to the disciples. If so, then the second point. When your king does the unexpected, trust him. I'm going to give two reasons to trust him. As we wrap up, Habakkuk, and if I remember correctly, two and a half years ago, I may have uh, preached from the passage on Habakkuk, but Habakkuk is one of my favorite uh, guys now. And in uh, chapter two, God gives him, he, God did the unexpected with Habakkuk, and he was totally destroyed and laid out his claims to God. And God said, the just shall live by his faithfulness and faith. The Hebrew word is translated both, by his faith and faithfulness. When our king, when our God does the unexpected, first, trust him. Put your faith and continue in faithfulness to him, our king, realizing and remembering he has it all under control. What comes into our life is a major interruption, and that which threatens to destroy us is not something that he has been surprised by. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but there has never been an emergency calling of the Trinity in order to figure out how to address a crisis. God has always, he currently has, and he always will have everything under control. I like to have things under my control. 
But gratefully, the Lord does not allow me to have things under my control. Gratefully, he has it under control. So no matter how it may look, no matter how dark it may seem, no matter how extreme the emergency or the crisis may seem, you will never, ever, mark this down in your minds if you don't hear anything else, you will never, ever experience anything that is outside the sovereign control of our loving Heavenly Father. Never. And for that reason, you can trust him. Second reason you can trust him. And this is what's hard for me. He has a better plan. He always has had a better plan. Going back to the last chapter of Genesis when uh, Joseph's brothers came to him and they were ready, uh, they were fearing that their father had died and that he was going to execute revenge. They came to him and said, before our father died, he said, don't kill us. And these words rang true to me and changed my life some uh, 30 years ago, and it continues today. He said these things, am I in the place of God? Rhetorical? No, I'm not. There's only one God. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. You... uh, Back following Sandy Hook, going back to that that horror, Max Licato came and he spoke to the pastors and he made the point that I'd never read before, that the word for you intended it for evil is the picture of a weaver. So Joseph's brothers were weaving their plan together for evil, but unbeknownst to them, God was behind the scenes weaving their evil together for good, the saving of many lives. And that has been the case of our loving Heavenly Father throughout all of time. No matter how dark the scenario may seem, this loving Father who has everything under control also has a plan that he's accomplishing. And he is no stranger to interruptions or that which we may see as a threat to the plan. He always has a better plan than any of us can come up with. And so this morning, if you are feeling this dynamic tension of a plan that has been interrupted and this potential aspect of God who has not done what we expected him to do or did what we would never expect, Trust him. He loves you far, far more than you could possibly imagine. He has it under control. And he's got a plan that he's going to accomplish, regardless of what we can see. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that reality. Despite the uncertainties of life, despite the interruptions in our plan, the diversions, despite all that's unexpected, thank you that you have loved us. And we thank you that the reality of Jesus' plan, when he did all of this, was so that he could accomplish a better plan 
not merely the overthrow of the Roman government, but deliverance from our sin, deliverance through his death on the cross, deliverance from ourselves, slavery to the enemy himself, and eternal freedom in you. Thank you, Father, that he kept the master plan. And as a result, we could be reconciled to you. Thank you that he did not live up to earthly human expectations, but that he accomplished your desires, your plan. And as a result, we could have fellowship with you this morning and with each other because of that. And we all affirm readily and joyfully that your plan is better than ours. Father, comfort hearts, reassure, and strengthen hearts with these truths. We pray in Jesus' name.